0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word.
1: Some have even tried to spiritualize it. I mean, the entire faith and prosperity movement within Christianity does just that. It makes it about the material. It makes the material the focus of God's blessing in their lives, and yet that theology is not at all taught in the Scriptures. Oh, it can be drawn from the Scriptures if you want to take a verse out of its context here, a snippet of a verse here, and apply it. But in its context, the Scriptures never teach that. Now, the Scriptures do not necessarily make having material things wrong. I want to say that, too. It doesn't make having things wrong, but material things are never to be sought after. Nor are they to be looked to as God's blessing in our lives. In fact, the apostle Paul gives us one of the clearest warnings in scripture about the pursuit of the material. And, and he tells, tells what our focus should really be about and what we really should be pursuing. He says this in 1st Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. 1st Timothy 6, verse 6 through verse 12. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And you know I have to say this, right? Because all pastors love to say that. You ain't never seen a U-Haul following a hearse, right? Hitched to the hearse. You ain't taking it with you. I've seen people put all kinds of stuff into the caskets of people. I've seen everything. I've seen all kinds of stuff go into caskets as though somehow they're going to need it. It ain't going to happen. Trust me. You're not going to need it. But he says, and, and having food, he says in verse 8, and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, now you hear what he says. He's not saying those who are rich, he says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows now do you hear he's not talking about the unbelieving world here he's talking about believers and he's saying they're the ones that have pierced themselves through. They're the ones, because they pursued this, that in a lot of ways, they've strayed from what's important in their, in their belief and in and, and the faith. But you, he says in verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." Now I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't get any clearer than it does in that passage, into the placement of of material riches. It's it's not that material riches are necessarily wrong, but the pursuit of those things and and the spiritualization of those things clearly is not being taught in the scriptures. And and even though God does give an abundance of uh, uh, of material things to some people, it, it's never meant to be something to be pursued or, or or to be taken as a sign of His special blessing upon their lives. It's simply that he has entrusted these things to them for the purpose and the work that he wants them to use it for. As First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, tells us, Paul goes on. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. I think Paul had a lot to say about this stuff, but he says this in verse 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Money, material things, material riches were never intended to be viewed as a source of fulfillment for our lives, or, or, or to be seen as a, a, a sign of God's special blessing upon any of us. I gotta tell you, I cringe. You know, and I've said this in my life at times, you know, when we've just been in a time of abundance in our lives to say, oh man, God is really blessing us now. And, and I'm, I'm completely, I've realized that how incognizant we are. That's probably not a good, is that even a word? How incognizant? You, you understand what I'm saying though. How unaware. We are the people we may be standing next to who are believers who have nothing. So what does it mean? I'm blessed and they're not? Oh, I have more faith and they don't have enough faith? I know some people who have nothing who have more faith than I have because they're serving and praising the Lord in the midst of their poverty without even flinching. And and and, and God provides for me and I go through these ups and downs of my faith and questioning God and where is he because I got a cold, you know, but they don't do that. It is not that we're more specially blessed if you have and you're living in abundance. You don't have to feel guilty about it, but but it's not about those things when you understand the eternal perspective of what God is saying about the material he gives to some and he withholds from others, but when he does when he does give to those that he gives to his intent is that those things would be wisely used, that those things, that, that they're good stewards I would hope that in the bigger picture that those who receive those material things in their life, not rewards, but are receiving the material abundance in their lives would realize that maybe it's because the Lord is trying to show them one of two things I trust your ability to be good steward of these things and to use them from my purposes, or he's given it to them to show them how poor stewards they are and what they need to wake up to that those things really are not about his blessing. Could be. But the point is the scriptures never make spiritual blessing about these things. And so far as churches that teach this kind of stuff, they need to take heed to Jesus's words to the church of Laodicea as recorded in Revelation chapter 3. Verses 17 through 18. Revelation 3, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So, Material things, not to be pursued, can be received, but not to be the focus of our lives. But as I started out by saying, Jesus doesn't primarily have material riches in mind with this statement that he's making here, but but he's still giving the contrast to spiritual poverty that we were looking at already in the beginning of the Beatitudes, and there is a form of riches that many people seek from the self-righteous ideas and, and practices that they engage in for their spirituality. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and those like them had created a system of religion which, which they filled their life with. And in doing that, they felt that it made them rich spiritually because of all the things that they were doing. They saw themselves as more especially blessed because of all the practices that they were keeping doing. It made them so much richer than other people because of all the things that they were doing. The traditions they created and followed, the the rituals that they exactingly kept, the external form of spirituality that they projected to people, seeing themselves as examples to everyone else because of what they were doing. And it all gave them a sense of spiritual richness and fulfillment. But Jesus is saying to them and to people like them even today, even though you might find these things fulfilling and enriching, it's really empty and it's devoid of anything of real value for your life. And until you empty yourself of these things, trading it all for spiritual poverty, you're really deceiving yourself and creating a false sense of spiritual satisfaction and richness. Oh, you might be getting your consolation, literally your your fulfilling comfort. That's what that means, consolation, your fulfilling comfort from it all now. But it's robbing you of the real comfort and satisfaction that comes by emptying yourself of your spirituality and your ideas and exchanging it all for the riches of what God provides and wants to give you for your life personally. But he can't. And he won't do that if you're content with what you have filled yourself up with spiritually. Now, he's not talking about the spiritual disciplines of the faith that we do. He's not talking about the things that we walk out in our faith. He's talking about that self-developed, self-righteous kind of spirituality that these guys thought was making them rich. And Jesus is now talking to the masses and he's saying, don't you go there. Woe to you <laughs> if you think that that's where your richness come from. So if you truly want to find life and the riches that will completely fill and satisfy you in this life and in the life to come, then you need to lose your life as you know it in exchange for the life that God wants to make available to you, even in the spirit realm, you see. It is poverty of spirit that will fill your life and not the material or even the the self-established spiritual things of this life and this world. That is the principle of God's kingdom. Spiritual poverty is at the heart of God's kingdom and his economy and the way he thinks. I got to tell you, honestly, for all the years I have studied my Bible and all long years that I've taught the scriptures, what 19 years now I've taught, and that doesn't count what I taught in Bible studies over the years, even when I was in the military. I don't think that spiritual poverty has ever jumped out to me as much as it has as I was working my way through this preparation for the book of Luke. I believe it undergirds everything for us. When we understand that emptying of self, that emptying of self of all the things that we think are important, all the things that we think make us spiritual, all of the things that somehow we think make us better people to God, to let those go so that there's nothing in us other than what he puts in us. (laughs) Because the problem is anything I put into myself is going to take up space if you will. There's only so much space to go around in our lives. And it's going to take up and it's going to inch out. That's why I said last week when we looked at this, it is really at the heart of, of John's statement, John the Baptist's statement, even though John didn't necessarily have this context in mind, but it certainly applies. I must decrease so he can increase. It's how it works. It's it's poverty of spirit. And and Jesus' words ring loud and clear on this issue. Just as we read in Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Do you want to be rich? Then buy it from me. Buy the righteousness I can give you. Buy the things that I can give you of value for your life spiritually, and you'll be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes and with eye salve that you may see. But woe to you who are rich, rich in the things that are not of me or my kingdom, Jesus is saying, for you've received your consolation. You've gotten it in this life. There ain't nothing left for you in the next, you see. Yep, well, look on. He says in verse 25, the next one, woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Literally, Jesus is saying here, what sorrow awaits you who are fat and filled now, content with what your life consists of, full of all the world has to offer and and lacking any hunger for God and the righteous things he knows you need and which only he provides. You might feel full now, but you're really malnourished, and one day that malnourishment is going to catch up with you, but then it'll be too late. As I said when addressing the second beatitude, you know, the stuff of our lives, the stuff of the world, the, even some of the spiritually good stuff that we fill our lives with, but which isn't of Jesus himself, will fill us up. It will give us some sense of satisfaction in quelling the hunger within us. But it's a satisfaction that will not last, nor will it provide the nourishment that our souls really crave and what we really need. Oh, it'll give us a sense of fullness for a time. And it might even lead to, to a seeming state of lasting fullness. Even starving people get to that point. People who are starving after a while lose their appetite and start to feel full. Their bellies even begin to expand as they're starving to death. But it's a false sense of fullness. It's a false sense of being filled, which ultimately leads to starvation and death, if not filled with the right things. So Jesus says, woe to you who are full, or think you are, for you shall hunger in the end. And then he goes on in that same verse and he says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus simply saying, oh, what sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow in the end. I can't help but think of the old adage, some of you know it, he who laughs last, laughs best, right? Did you know what the meaning of that statement is? It's simple, right? It simply means that the final winner will have more glory than someone who was winning in the beginning, but ultimately lost. You might be laughing, thinking you're winning, but in reality... He who laughs last, laughs best. And that's never more true than in a spiritual sense. A lot of people who think they're living their best lives now, you know, laughing it up and enjoying themselves in regard to everything that they're filling their lives with, even some of the spiritual things that have nothing to do with Jesus, but all to do about them, are doing so at the expense of spiritual realities, and and they're setting themselves up for a joyless future. Now, this is not to say or to even imply that the Christian life needs to be joyless or miserable. You know, you don't have to walk around like this, right? Of course, now if we look sad, nobody can tell because we're all wearing masks most of the time, right? But like I told you guys a few weeks ago, you know what? I'm one of those people. You're going to find out, you know, especially when the masks come off. I keep telling people, you don't see it, but I'm grinning underneath my mask. That's something I've just said or you've said. You know, I love to laugh. I love to have a good time. I just... I. I like life. I enjoy life. I enjoy finding joy in life. I, Even when I'm not finding joy in life, I try to find a reason to find joy in life. I've only let my pouting go on for so long because by nature, I just like to laugh. I enjoy those things. And so Christianity was never meant to be a joyless faith. But as we talked about with the third beatitude, weeping and sorrow, the the, the kind of weeping and sorrow that Jesus is talking about has to do with a repentant sorrow. It has to do with a recognition and understanding of the depth of our spiritual poverty as as fallen human beings. It's about recognizing and bracing the reality of how far short we really fall of the glory of God, and, and how tainted by sin our lives really are, and how desperately we need to be redeemed from it. It's when we embrace that reality that our weeping turns to true tears of joy. It's when we realize this reality that we can fully enter into the joy of our salvation, you see. So this is not about Christians walking around with somber, teary-eyed faces, living joyless lives in this world now. In fact, Jesus tells us that he came to bring us a full and robust life, right? John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. As Paul tells us in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. There's a pastor I like listening to, his name's Gail Irwin. He's been around the Calvary Chapel movement for years. And Gail, when he does his conferences, he wears these suspenders. And he loves these verses where that exceedingly abundantly comes up and he puts his thumbs under there and he goes exceedingly abundantly, you know. But what does that, that convey exceedingly abundantly? Above all that we think or asked, Paul says, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Abundance by its very nature, by its very definition, speaks of incredible joy, doesn't it? So again, this is not at all about living some sober, sad, depressing, sorrowful, teary-eyed kind of life, but, but it's a warning that to seek out and embrace for our lives the joy that this world has to offer us over the joy found by the simple recognition of who we really are and what Christ alone has done for us and offers to do, do for us and yielding to that offer. And trading the joy that comes from receiving from him and that offer that he's giving to us in exchange for keeping control of our own lives and filling it with stuff that we think will make us happy will produce nothing but sorrow and death in the end. You see, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall one day mourn and weep because you traded the joy of salvation and eternity for the fleeting joys of this world now. Don't trade it. Don't trade it. Verse 26, woe to you. When all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Ooh. Boom. <laughs> it become my favorite expression anymore. Sometimes the simplest statements in scripture are the ones that are just like a nuclear device going off within. Boom. It's right there. In this final woe, which is the contrast to that fourth and final beatitude, J- Jesus simply says, watch out when the world embraces your message and speaks, speaks good of it and of you because it's an indicator that you have compromised your life and message and are in league with false prophets. That's what he's saying. Wow, what a sobering statement to think about. There are Christians who have so spiritually watered down their lives, so watered down the message of the gospel, so watered down the message of the scriptures, so as simply not to offend, that they've become nothing more than false prophets, in a sense. Presenting... A God God in a way that he is not, presenting a Jesus that's foreign to the Scriptures. They're the very people that Paul warned Timothy would especially appear in the last days, right? For the time will come, he says in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 5, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, Paul says. Paul says these are the very people who will come along and they're going to be the ones that, that are going to adjust their message so that it tickles the or scratches the itching ears of people the way they want their ears scratched instead of simply presenting the truth as the truth is. Oh, they get people, by doing that, they're going to get people into the seats and into the pews of their churches. In fact, in many cases, they'll pack them in. They'll be some of the largest churches. But they're filled with people who wouldn't know spiritual truth if it hit them square between the eyes. Someone said a long time ago, I wonder how many people would show up for church on a Sunday morning if the rapture occurred on Saturday night. (laughs) I suspect there would be a fairly sizable crowd, you know? As disciples and servants of Christ, the favor of men is not our concern. It's not our concern. Well, we're not to, to, we're not called to share a graceless or a caustic message with people. I am not endorsing that at all. And I think there are those who, who take this and then they twist that into that. Oh, that means I got to get in their faces. No, it's not. Oh, it means I got to call out everything somebody's doing and call them every time I see a sin. I'm going to call it out. I'm going to be the sin sniffer. No. It's not at all that. In fact, you know, we're not called to do that. Our message is always, as Colossians 4, 6 says, it's always to be shared with grace and seasoned with salt. Salt does what? It it wets the appetite, right? It, it causes you to thirst a little bit. It adds seasoning so that what's being said is somewhat flavorful, you know. But too much salt? I've had the salt shaker pop off. I had my kids one time setting me up at the dinner table. By loosening the cap on the salt container. And when I went to salt it, it just poured out on my meat. But that steak looked so good. I was going to eat that steak no matter what. So I tried to scrape it off, but it didn't matter. It was distasteful from that point on because the salt worked itself in way too much. No, we're to, we're to, pre- to share our message with grace and that rice, right, that right seasoning of salt with people. And we're to always share the truth in love. Paul says that in Ephesians 4.15. I see a lot of loveless messages being shared today. I see a lot of loveless messages being shared by people today. We also need to remember that we're not called to to live and present a message at the same time that people will people always like either. We 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 can't compromise the witness of our lives. We can't compromise the message we've been given to share with people just to gain their approval and to do that is to portray Jesus the one that we serve. And yet this is also not to imply that just because, and I want to make this clear, just because some unsaved person receives your message about Jesus, it also doesn't mean that that somehow you must be compromising. There are people who will hear the clear message of truth as offensive as truth can be. And trust me, truth alone in itself is going to be offensive because we live in a world right now where you're not allowed to have truth anymore. Truth's in question. It's being questioned on both sides of the aisle, isn't it? We're watching that right now. What's true in the news? What's true at the polls? What's true? Everybody's questioning truth. We live in a postmodern world where who can say what truth is? You know what? That very statement alone is implying that there's truth because you just made a statement saying it's true that no one can say that there's truth. Well, how do you know if there's no truth? How do you know what you're saying is true? You see how confusing that can be? Look, the simple matter is there is truth. Jesus stood in front of Pilate, and do you remember what Pilate said? What is is truth? And, And Jesus is standing right there in front of the very essence of truth. I always find that amazing. The silence in that moment was deafening. I'm truth. And yet Jesus tells us the truth of who he is will offend people. Because in the end, there will always be people, in fact, the vast majority of humanity, that has no interest in a God and a Savior other than themselves, where they can call the shots and make the decisions for themselves. So, look, I understand it, but but let's not roll everybody into that category. There will be people who will hear truth who may be even offended by truth when they first hear it. But that truth is going to rattle around in their heads and in their hearts. And they come to faith in Christ as a result of it. So it doesn't mean that just because somebody embraces your message, that that, that somehow now means that you compromise. compromised. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Jesus makes that clear. What he says, woe to you all, woe to you when all, right? He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. He doesn't say, woe to you when 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 some men speak well of you. Says when all. In other words, when it's everybody's embracing it, that ought to cause you some concern.